You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. Yeah, oh, I am a scientist. We gotta live on science Welcome to Unbiased Science, where we bring scientific method to the madness. We're your hosts, Dr. Jessica Steyer. And Dr. Andrea Love. And this week, we are joined by a very special guest to discuss something that's been splashed all over the news lately, all over the headlines, something that you probably have in your medicine cupboard right now uh, that you reach for when you're stuffed up or congested. We'll talk more about that in a moment. Phenylephrine or phenylephrine, depending on who you ask. And this is going to be wrapped up in a larger conversation about the FDA approval process, because we know you have a lot of questions. We are joined today by Dr. Mikhail Sekaris, who is Chief of Hematology at the University of Miami's Sylvester Comprehensive Cancer Center and author of the book, Drugs and the FDA. He earned his medical degree and a master's degree in clinical epidemiology from the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. Dr. Sekaris completed his postgrad training at Harvard University, finishing an internal medicine residency at Mass General Hospital and a fellowship in hematology oncology at the Dana-Farber Cancer Institute in Boston. He chaired the Oncology Drugs Advisory Committee of the FDA, has been on the editorial boards for several medical journals, and chairs scientific advisory boards for patient advocacy groups and research funding agencies. So we came to learn of Dr. Sekaris because we we read this amazing piece in Vox, which we will hyperlink. Mikhail, we're going to call him by his first name. We got permission. We're going by first names on this episode. Um, He was recently interviewed and and again, we'll, we'll link to this piece, which was titled, Why Are So Many Useless Cold Medicines Littering Pharmacy Shelves? And he has said that the FDA has been reviewing the efficacy of older drugs for years, and they're really far behind. And we're going to talk all about this, but largely because of the agency's limited resources. And that, you know, while removing drugs that are familiar to the public, like phenylephrine, might be confusing, um, he thinks, and we agree, that it's the right thing to do. So, so let's let's dig in. Andrea, do you want to segue? I'm chuckling because I've known, we've known, you know, scientists have known that that phenylephrine has been useless for decades. And I remember my dad, um, you know, he's, he's, um, engineer, you know, by trainer, you know, he's self-taught engineer. He he was in the Navy and he has a bachelor's in geology, but he's very like up on science and current data. And he texts me one of these articles and I was like, finally, you know, we've known for so long, it doesn't work. You know, we're going to talk a lot about, you know, the resources and, and, what things FDA prioritizes over others when it when it comes to um, either recall or withdrawal. And, and I think, you know, hopefully we'll give some of you maybe are a little skeptical of the FDA a little bit more confidence. Super excited to have you, Mikhail. You're, you're really one of the experts in how, you know, these, these regulatory processes happen. You've obviously, you know, studied this at length. You've been involved in this process. We're obviously going to talk about your specific clinical expertise in the context of some of these oncology medications, but can you kind of take us back in history and and talk about how the FDA really began and, and how it came to be what we recognize it 
as today. Sure. Well, first of all, let me say I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you so much. What a huge compliment it was when you reached out. And I was the one who got permission to call both of you by your first name. It wasn't the other way around. So thank you also for that. And this is a great topic. It's so interesting. You know, you almost have to go back in time to the 19th century to understand where we started with drugs. And back in the 19th century, it was an era where medicines being safe or actually working or actually being true to what the label on the bottle said was not something we took for granted. Entrepreneurs had complete freedom to manufacture and market any food or drug in any way for any purpose. One of my favorite examples was one of these patent medicines, that's what they were called, was called Hamlin's Wizard Oil. And it advertised itself as this wondrous cure for ailments ranging for toothache, rheumatism, lame back, hydrophobia, pneumonia, all the way to cancer. And it even had a slogan that said, there is no sore it will not heal, no pain it will not subdue. I would love it if I had a medicine like this. <laughs> but despite all of that, it really was absolutely useless and was usually composed of any chemicals or ingredients somebody had at hand. So they would add a little kubebs, burnt sugar for coloring, and mostly it was alcohol. And it was different compositions of this depending on what the manufacturer had on that particular day that they were pulling into town to give it to people. So it wasn't until 1902 that progress towards regulation of food and drugs actually began, and it was spurred by a tragic event. And in my book, Drugs and the FDA, I talk a lot about how to understand where the FDA is today, we have to understand that all of the major regulations that went into place to create the FDA were born out of tragedy. So in 1902, 22 children in St. Louis and Camden, New Jersey, who were sick with either smallpox or diphtheria, were treated with vaccines for smallpox and a vaccine for diphtheria. Unfortunately, those vaccines were tainted with tetanus. So these 22 kids died of tetanus, right? Well, there was a huge public uproar, in re and in response to that, Congress passed the Biologics Control Act, and soon after that, the Pure Food and Drugs Act. So it was the very first time there was anything on the books that said the government could regulate drugs. But even then, the regulation had nothing to do with are the drugs safe or are they effective. All they said was whatever the label says on the bottle has got to be inside the bottle. Didn't say it had to be safe. Didn't say what, had, what was in the bottle had to be effective. It just had to be what the label said. So then take your, yourself back in time to the early 20th century. Right now, we kind of take it for granted that the major killers that we face are cancer, um, cardiovascular disease. For kids, it's often trauma. Um, but back in the early 20th century, the major killers were infections. So there was a big push to start to develop antibiotics back then, right? And we had things like sulfa antibiotics. They weren't the complicated, sophisticated antibiotics we have now, but they were at least something. And there was this race among a lot of companies to make these antibiotics more appealing. And in the 1930s, the S.E. Massengill Company of Bristol, Tennessee, wanted to create a liquid form of the antibiotic sulfonylamide that would be easier for patients, particularly children, to ingest. So their chief chemist, this guy named Harold Cole Watkins, added substances to make the drug more palatable. That included raspberry extract, well, that sounds good. Saccharin, sure, that'll be nice and sweet. 
caramel, delicious, and the sweet tasting solvent diethylene glycol, what we would now call antifreeze. So he added antifreeze to this stuff because it's sweet, it's right? It's very you, sweet, yeah. Right? You never leave antifreeze out because... The animals God, will drink it. Exactly. Yep. That's exactly right, Andrea. So he added it and he was allowed to because there were no regulations that said you, that, that you couldn't add whatever you wanted to to these drugs. Well, in September of 1937, 240 gallons of the medicine were distributed across the country and doctors began prescribing it regularly. But then... 71 adults and 34 children died from taking the tainted antibiotic. So the FDA mounted this huge response to this and, and dispatched all of their inspectors to track down the company's 200 salesmen to identify the drugstores and doctor's officer, offices that had stocked the elixir. And it was really remarkable. It was an incredible effort in the 1930s, store by store, druggist by druggist, and prescription by prescription, the FDA team worked to find every single patient who still had a bottle of this stuff to confiscate the remaining medicines. There's even this incredible story about how there was a small town in the Southeast where the um, culture was that when somebody died, you you know bury them mm. and then in the soil above the body, you would plant all of their remaining medicines. So some of these FDA agents actually went to the graves of people who had died from sulfonylamide to retrieve the remaining amount of the drug in the bottle, right? Like incredible. Unbelievable. It's pretty remarkable. And it kind of, even in the rudimentary form before it had any regulatory oversight, kind of goes to show how serious they take these things. It was, it was right, fascinating. So they were able to recover 234 out of 240 gallons of this stuff. And then of course there was this public outrage to what had happened and, and eventually it led to President Franklin Roosevelt signing the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act into law in June of 1938. And the core of this law was that drug manufacturers had to file a, a, a formal new drug application with the FDA in which they submitted scientific data regarding a drug's composition, manufacturing process, quality control, and for the very first time, safety. So for the very first time, drugs had to be safe in 1938. Okay, so that's the start of safety. You're saying that's the 1930s. Now yeah. there's this other concept that we have to talk about, efficacy, right? Does the drug actually work? So when did that start uh, being a requirement? Data on efficacy. Jess, I really think you're being too high maintenance for thinking <laughs> the drug to work. <laughs> Silly me. <laughs> Just be safe. Safe is good enough. Right? Safe is good enough. There you go. So Say, so safety, safety, safety. The FDA was first created around safety, right? So when I'm thinking about um, people or manufacturers who are bringing a drug before the FDA, I always think in the back of my mind, the very first thing you've got to prove beyond a reasonable doubt is that a drug has to be safe. So then move forward from the 1930s. And this is actually important, this gap between 1938 when drugs were supposed to be safe and then when they had to be effective uh, is really pertinent to phenylephrine or phenylephrine, whatever your pleasure. What wound up happening, let's fast forward to the 1950s. Um, there was a huge, this is the very first time that actually manufacturers perfected marketing of drugs. And there were a huge, a huge amount of ads that went out about all these different drugs and all the things that they could potentially do. Well, one of the drugs that was manufactured by a company in 
Germany called the uh, Chemie Grunenthal company was called thalidomide. And thalidomide was marketed in this very specific way. There was an ad from the 1950s where it shows a little girl in a bathroom and she's reaching up to the medicine cabinet and opening it. You know, she's not supposed to be there. She's stepping on a step stool. She's just kind of goofing around investigating. And she pulls out a, a, a jar of thalidomide. And the ad said, aren't you glad this wasn't a barbiturate that this little girl was reaching to by, for by accident, right? So it was marketed at this, as this non-barbiturate sleep aid and sedative. And it started to be marketed in Europe, uh, particularly Germany. Now, um, in Germany, um, it was being used and there was a, a pediatrician who ran a pediatric intensive care unit who noticed that a lot of the kids in the unit were being born without arms or legs or with misshapen arms or legs or without ears. Uh, his name was Vitikund Lenz. And around the same time, there was a lawyer, uh, Carl Schulte Hillen, whose um, child was also born without ears. And the two got together and decided to see how big of a problem is this really? And they literally piled into Schulte Hillen's Volkswagen and drove around Germany. And they had a picture of his child with them. And they went into villages and would show the picture and say, we're looking for other children like this. We're trying to find the cause of this. And, and back then the kids were, were really sequestered. They were hidden. They, they were considered an embarrassment. It was, it was terrible. But, but people let them into their houses and into their medicine cabinets. And they were the ones who did this kind of ad hoc- Epidemiology kind of almost. Epidemiology yeah. thing, right? So they went and found if there was thalidomide in the medicine cabinets and compared them to kids who didn't have birth abnormalities and found that, of course, all these kids who had birth abnormalities, that the moms had taken thalidomide. Around the same time, this is really fascinating, um, there was a, a U.S. firm, Richardson Merrill, that wanted to distribute thalidomide in the U.S. and they were really chomping at the bit to do it in 1960. So there was a brand new doctor at the FDA whose name was Francis o Francis Kelsey, right? And this was her very first assignment. Can you imagine your very first assignment at the FDA yeah. is the one? So much pressure. Yeah. Right? Now, she was no stranger to think about side effects of drugs. She got her PhD at University of Chicago, and there her, her um, thesis was on the effects of drug on fetuses. So how, how's that for a coincidence, yeah. right? She's the she perfect person. She, she was like amazing. And she also happened to be one of those FDA people who was dispatched for the sulfonilamide disaster oh. to go and collect some of this stuff. Remarkable, right? Yeah. So she's given this application, she reads it over and she's like, they're not listing any side effects. I don't, I don't buy it. Something's, something's not right here. So she rejected it. So the company came back and gave testimonials. Oh, this doctor says it's great. She said, no way. That's this not, isn't that's not data. Those are anecdotes. <laughs> so, she she actually put it off long enough that the very first report came out in Lancet about thalidomide causing peripheral neuropathies. And then she said, aha, I didn't see any of this before. And then the real reports came out of Europe about the, the incredible birth defects that occurred. So she single-handedly prevented this drug 
from getting onto the U.S. market. I like this story because it actually came up during the COVID pandemic when we were trying to address misinformation about regulatory review of vaccines and people were using thalidomide as a comparison. And we were like, listen, it wasn't approved by the FDA. It was caught and it was flagged because of that oversight. Right. And, and, and really this one person's oversight. And oh, and the company was like nefarious. They went to her boss and started to talk about how obnoxious she was for not approving it. And you have to wonder if they would have done this if this were a man sure. at the FDA. Sure. Too, right? Yeah. So because of the public opprobrium that, that resulted from this, there was a call for more legislation of drugs. Estes Kafaver was the senator from Tennessee, and he was actually known for leading the Senate Special Committee to investigate organized crime a decade earlier. So the public viewed him as this protector against you know, these nefarious crime organizations. So he basically kind of pitched the pharmaceutical industry as kind of like organized crime and was able to get legislation passed in 1962 that finally called not only the drugs be effective, but also set the structure for all the different phase trials that we run now, right? Actually codified it. He yeah. said, okay, if they have to be effective, how do we show that? And also brought in for the first time patient autonomy in informed consent. So important. And that was called the Kefauver-Harris Amendments, right? And so that was 1962. So now you've got safety in 1938. You've got efficacy in 1962, as well as phased clinical trials and requirements for informed consent for clinical trials. Right, exactly. And then, so this was great, right? Finally, we have a structure for conducting clinical trial research to demonstrate that drugs are effective, but it raised this major question. What do you do about all the drugs that were approved between 1938 and 1962. And this is where phenylephrine comes into the story because it was it was during that, so it was soon afterwards, it was actually, in, I think it was 1966, that um, the Drug Efficacy Study Implementation, or DESI, was put into play. And DESI was the kind of mechanism for looking at these drugs and saying, okay, um, should they still remain on the market? Okay, so you're talking about phenylephrine. Can we can we sort of take just one step back? What is phenylephrine for those who are not familiar? Can you explain, you know, what it is? What do we use it for? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, if, if we're going to be really informal about it, phenylephrine is the drug my mother used to cram into me when I was a kid <laughs> <laughs> of having a stuffy nose. Yeah, same. Same. Right. I've taken it my whole life. And that's, and that's the thing. So like, so, so, you know, phenylephrine is used as the decongestant component in all these over-the-counter cold medicines. And often people don't realize that there's off, there's two formulations, right? There's the one that you can get just on the shelf that's got the phenylephrine. And then there's the one you have to go to the pharmacy counter that's got the pseudoephedrine. That's, that's the one that actually does decongesting work because that one can be used to make methamphetamine. And so it's, it's a little bit more restrictive on who can buy it, but it's, it's in all these, you know, pseudofeds and Tylenol colds and all the ones that say like the PE sometimes on them. And, and that's the one that has the, the phenylephrine component in it. Yeah. So you, you can't make crystal meth with phenylephrine, no, right? That's why it's behind the counter with the with the pharmacist. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah. So phenylephrine is is you know supposed to work through these alpha one adrenergic receptor mechanisms to shrink 
the blood vessels in the sinuses and therefore shrink the inflammation, right? That's how it's supposed to yeah. work. And yeah. it probably does work that way if it's given intranasally. The, the, the problem with phenylephrine is, as we recognize it in, in pill form, which was, I think, my primary mode of subsistence when I was a kid, <laughs> was, <laughs> is that it gets broken down by the gastric yeah. gastric acid. So it, it actually winds up not being a Yeah. Phenylephrine has been on the market, as you said, Mikhail, you know, since the 1930s, right? And, and you know, a lot of these these studies evaluating, you know, safety, certainly it's safe, um, but, but efficacy, you know, these were done before the 1990s. And so, you know, a lot of modalities to measure these sorts of, you know, data points are maybe a little bit antiquated. Yeah. And there were, so, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually a practicing hematologist oncologist. I don't usually don't prescribe phenylephrine or talk about it that much with my patients. The, the folks who really did the research on this were from, um, I believe it was university of Florida. It was pharmacists who started to beat the drum about getting this drug off the market because it wasn't effective. It made no sense to them. And if you look at the studies that were conducted, they weren't necessarily bad studies, but they had kind of mushy endpoints, right? So you're not looking at, um, you, and, and you could think about, you know, you're, you're both scientists, you can think about how you would design a study that would show whether or not phenylephrine is effective, right? And maybe it would be somebody who has documented rhinorrhea, you intervene kind of day one, you see the duration of their illness, whether it's shortened, kind of like how Tamiflu got its approval, you might have some kind of formal machine that assesses your ability to breathe in and out of your nose and see if that improves over time. And that's not really how some of these studies were conducted. They were much more focused on, so do you feel any better? Yeah. <laughs> <Right>. Very subjective <laughs> data collection. Right. Subjective self-reporting. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, self-reporting. So I, I've also done some research in uh, patient-reported outcomes. So. I, I, I love patient-reported outcome studies, and I love them when they're done rigorously with instruments that actually reflect people feeling better, mm -hmm. right? I'm not sure that these instruments represent that bar. Right. Oh, no, absolutely. And I'm not discounting self-reported measures at all. I mean, so much of what I've done in you know, tobacco policy work relied on, on, on self-reported data. But to your point, I mean, there are ways to collect it rigorously, and then we often validate or you know, collect data in conjunction with other more objective you know, me measures of, of outcomes. All right, so we're talking about this now because the FDA held a non-prescription drug advisory committee meeting from September 11th through the 12th of this year to discuss the effectiveness of oral phenylephrine as an active ingredient in over-the-counter cough and cold products that are indicated for the temporary relief of congestion, uh, both as a single ingredient product and in combination with other ingredients. And the committee discussed new data on the effectiveness of oral phenylephrine and concluded that the current scientific data do not support that the recommended dosage of orally administered phenylephrine is effective as a nasal decongestant. However, neither FDA nor the committee raised concerns about safety issues. So again, we're talking about effectiveness. We're not talking about safety. So the advisory panel agreed unanimously that phenylephrine is ineffective as an oral medication. And this means that 
that, you know, med- medicines that many of us know, I think, Andrea, you might have said this already, but Sudafed PE and Dayquil and others, which contain the drug, are not working as advertised. So, you know, I think a lot of people are asking the question, how did this happen and how did it take so long for us to, you know, talk about pulling this product off the shelves? Can we chat about that, Mikhail? Yeah, it's it's a great question. So. I was an advisor to the FDA, and actually I I still am occasionally an advisor to the FDA. I served on the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee for a five-year period. I chaired it for two, and that's kind of a -a once-in-a-lifetime appointment. Once you've done it, you're done. So since then, I've been called back on a couple of other Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee panels as a special government employee, but I'm not on the inside of the FDA to see how they're making their decisions. So I can guess what happened, and that is that the FDA really has limited resources. And if I'm in the FDA and I'm thinking about how I'm going to allocate those resources, what what am I going to focus on? Well, new drugs for life-threatening conditions, right? That's got to be number one. Then monitoring drugs that have known toxicities, because remember, the FDA is the very first thing they're focused on is safety, safety, safety. And that doesn't end when a drug's approved. It continues in post-marketing surveillance. So focusing on drugs and their safety. Then number three, maybe I I don't have a ton of resources, but I wanna go and visit some of those factories where they're manufacturing the drug and make sure about the purity of the product and the reliability of supply chains, right? Which is really a a much bigger deal than than I've ever thought about before for manufacturing drugs. So where is a drug that doesn't really work, doesn't really hoit, fall on that list of things that I'm going to prioritize at the FDA. If I'm speculating, it's, it's going to fall pretty low. And it's going to take people who are rabble-rousers to keep it on the FDA's radar for years and years and years before they're finally going to say, OK, I'm tired of these gadflies. Let's just deal with this so they'll leave us alone. Right? So the, the TLDR here is, you know, FDA is first and foremost concerned with safety. I feel like we need to repeat that for everybody who, you know, tries to, you know, dismiss the, the FDA. And of course, they're going to be looking very closely at newer medications, especially some of these novel therapeutics that may have some side effects. But the side effects are balanced with the fact that these diseases they're being treated for are really serious and, and currently incurable. And so when you're looking at something that's been around for 90 years at this point and isn't really hurting, it isn't really helping, but it's perfectly safe to take, that's that's kind of the bottom of the, the pile there. Andrea, I think that's, that's exactly how I would think about it. And, you know, w- when you're the FDA, one of the, the um, phrases that I heard people at FDA repeat over and over again is to focus on the totality of data. What does that mean? That means that for something that's very serious, and I treat people who have leukemia, right? Seriousness of leukemia, of acute leukemia, means if I don't treat somebody with a drug, their median survival is gonna be about two months, right? So they're gonna die within two months if we don't treat somebody for their acute leukemia. So if I give a drug that, for example, may cause side effects bad enough to you know, significantly harm or even kill somebody in 8% of patients, harm in 8% of patients versus harm in 100% of patients, it, it's going to be justified. If I'm treating the common wart, right? Common wart, gee, is it annoying. I hate getting a wart, right? 
But is it going to kill me? It certainly doesn't justify a drug that has an 8 to 10% mortality rate in it. So it's the totality of data for these drugs. Are you saying context matters? <laughs> <laughs> and that's those nuance in science and medicine? Consensus of evidence? Um we often hear, you know, concerns from people about these lack of resources from the FDA. You know, with, with phenylephrine, you know, it, it's kind of TBD, what's going to happen to all those existing products. It sounds like they might be recalled from the market because there isn't a lot of evidence. But, but again, this is more about efficacy concerns and not safety concerns. What, what, what about some of these FDA-approved medications that that do legitimately have some safety concerns and and post-market surveillance have led to some flags being um, raised. Yeah, it's a it, it, that is a fabulous question. So you know the next stage in the FDA's evolution was to allow drugs to be approved in an accelerated fashion. What, what does that mean? This was really born out of the phenomenal HIV. AIDS activist movement in the 1980s and the 1990s. And we can credit ACT UP and one of its leaders, Larry Kramer, for really um, rabble-rousing enough that it led to this legislation. And the legislation was in 1992. It was called PDUFA. It allows for drugs to be approved for serious or life-threatening conditions where nothing else is really cutting the mustard that's out there based on a an interim marker that's reasonably likely to predict a clinical benefit, a meaningful clinical benefit. What the heck does that mean? Well, let's use uh, cancer as an example. You have uh, a mass or a tumor that's growing, and let's say that tumor has grown to be six centimeters in diameter. If you have a drug that shrinks that tumor from six centimeters down to one centimeter, it's reasonably likely to think that that person is going to have a better outcome, right? And, And maybe that outcome may be a longer survival. So that's an interim marker of a clinically meaningful benefit like overall survival. And clinically meaningful benefits to the FDA boil down to lives longer or lives better. Does a drug allow somebody to survive longer or to survive better, to to have a better quality of life? Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 you know, the cancer, and I know we're going to talk about a couple of examples, but, you know, a lot of these, these cancer treatments, I mean, cancer is thousands of different genetically distinct diseases that are a catch-all um, and and simply relate to your cells not behaving the way they're supposed to and they're growing out of control and they're not listening to these cues. And so a lot of times you're using multiple treatments, right? You're using a treatment that's going to um, shrink the size of the tumor or you know promote tumor regression so that then surgery can be used where previously surgery wasn't an option because the tumor was invading organs or, or nerves that you couldn't operate on, or, or it's going to, um, you know, you're going to use two different combinations of medications that will target different aberrant behaviors of the cancer. And so working together, it might be more effective. But again, because cancer is your own cells, a lot of those medications just by and large have higher side effect profiles. Right, exactly. So um, with more aggressive cancers, we're willing to accept higher side effect profiles. And if one of those drugs is approved by the FDA under the accelerated approval mechanism, one of the components of that is, yep, you can get a drug to market quicker. You have to have a confirmatory trial, so a follow-up study that confirms at least the same amount of benefit and toxicity 
as the first trial, but ideally extends it so you can show that it's actually allowing people to live longer or live better. And then, but then, here's the rub. If that trial doesn't demonstrate that, the FDA also has a mechanism for what they are now calling, this is the most recent update of PDUFA, because it's updated every five years, it's renewed every five years. The most recent renewal of PDUFA refers to as accelerated withdrawal. In other words, the FDA reserves the right to pull that marketing approval from a company. So there's been a few examples that have come up in the news, particularly related to some of these cancer treatments. So maybe, Mikhail, we can we can walk through some of those in just a second, but, but there's some other medications that have history of being voluntarily withdrawn by the companies after FDA has reviewed data um, post-market because the risks didn't outweigh the benefits. So, so some like medications that were not indicated for cancer, but for example, um, Belvique was, was withdrawn in 2020. This was used for weight loss, weight management, and, and this was because a post-market surveillance study um, demonstrated that there was a, a modest but, but higher prevalence of cancer in the treatment group compared to the placebo group. So this was um, 12,000 people were enrolled in the study, and they um, measured a 7.7% incidence of cancer across the test group and a 7.1% uh, percent cancer incidence in the placebo group, and that was across five years. So not a huge difference, but a difference enough that it was it was withdrawn um, because, again, this medication wasn't for something life-threatening. It was a weight loss medication. Yeah, so it's a, it's a perfect example, Andrea, of where the FDA focuses on safety, 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 right? And where the severity of the condition being treated is seems to now be outweighed by the potential side effects of it. So even if it is overall a 0.6% increase in cancer arising, a 0.00001% increase in cancer arising for, for treating that condition isn't justified. Correct. Yes, absolutely. So let's talk about some of these more muddy situations when we are treating fatal illnesses like cancers many of these are are aggressive cancers and were and a lot of these medications that are up for discussion are, are novel therapeutics that are what we call immunotherapies, right? They're targeting some particular protein or, or some pathway in the cancer cells that are are not um, as active in the healthy cells in our body. And so the idea is they're going to be more specific to killing or targeting the cancer cells and leaving alone the normal, the healthy cells in our body. And there's been a few that have been in the news lately where some of them have had certain approvals withdrawn, but are still approved for other cancers. So maybe, Mikhail, you can kind of talk about some of some of the justification in, in those instances. Yeah, it's, it, it's a great question. So one of the threads that runs through the, the book Drugs and the FDA is the entire Bevacizumab or Avastin story for breast cancer. So Bevacizumab was this, you know, incredible drug that was developed through this this theory that if you kill the blood supply to tumors, um, that'll be that'll be the fix. That'll that'll do it for those cancers, and, and it will allow people to live longer. So Avastin or Bevacizumab has been approved for a variety of cancers, and I actually sat on the Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee meeting for after it was approved for breast cancer under accelerated approval, whether it should remain on the market. And I, I was actually part of two hearings. One was an official 
ODAC, Oncologic Drugs Advisory Committee meeting, where we voted on whether or not Avastin should remain on the market for its breast cancer indication. And then I was at a second meeting, which was basically a trial, and we were the jury between the FDA and, and Genentech, the manufacturer of Avastin. And, and here's the issue. The accelerated approval was based on something called progression-free survival. And that's this endpoint in cancer that some people will argue is clinically meaningful and some people will argue is not clinically meaningful. And in the initial study, women who had metastatic breast cancer who received a chemotherapy combination that included Avastin had a progression-free survival that was about six to eight months longer than those who didn't receive the Avastin. And progression-free survival doesn't mean somebody lives longer and doesn't mean they live better. It means they go a longer period of time without the breast cancer growing. Yeah. Right? So you can see how it's controversial. Yeah. You know, the kind of emotional response to that is, well, that's got to be better for somebody, right? right? The cancer is not growing. But then you have to ask, did somebody actually live longer when that happened? And the answer is not necessarily. And then you can ask, was their quality of life any better? And the answer was no. They actually did quality of life surveys. They didn't live any better. But the FDA thought that was a good enough signal to get the drug on the market under accelerated approval. But they required the confirmatory trial. So Genentech ran not one, but two confirmatory trials, adding Bevacizumab Avastin to other chemotherapy regimens. And in the confirmatory trials, not only did it not substantiate that original progression-free survival duration, but progression-free survival shrank down to just a few weeks advantage. So now there's no advantage. No advantage, and in one of the trials, overall survival was actually arguably worse in women who got Avastin. So you had a drug that gave a lot of side effects, and bleeding was one of those complications. Women had had, had um, brain bleeds, among other things, or GI bleeds, um, but, but they may have been dying more. So then the FDA is in a bit of a quandary. What do they do? Well, they held an ODAC. We voted that the drug should be removed for the breast cancer indication. It's still on the market for other indications. And then the company legally has a right to say, nope, we're not going to withdraw it. And that led to a trial. And then the trial basically pitted the Genentech lawyers versus the FDA lawyers. And in the end, as the jury, we were again asked, should Bevacizumab be removed for the breast cancer indication? And we, we voted that it should. And that is an incredibly hard decision. It is so hard to remove a drug from the market that people are convinced is helping them when the data say otherwise. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, it's it's so impactful hearing it from someone who actually participated, you know, and, and of course this this is has huge implications, right? Because, you know, now people who have metastatic breast cancer are going to have to, you know, look for alternatives, but Bevacizumab is still approved for um, cervical and colorectal cancers and and some types of recurrent glioblastomas, which are really aggressive brain cancers and and um, um, non-small cell lung carcinomas and and some other things. So you know, and there's there's been some other in- instances of more recent um, voluntary withdrawals um, in a similar vein. So Avastin that happened in 2011, but there was one for atezolizumab, which was um, um, Tecentric is the the name brand, and that that 
that had two different um, withdrawals. One was for metastatic urothelial carcinoma in, in 2022, last year, and then um, triple negative breast cancer was withdrawn in 2021, but that one is still approved for um, um, non-small cell lung cancer, um, small cell lung cancer, hepatocellular, so so liver cancers, and, and some other ones. So, you know, there, there's a few of these instances, right, where there's these medications that are approved for, for some cancers, but then they've been withdrawn from another. So, you know, how how is the public supposed to feel about about this when when you know there are these meds, right? Their their approvals are being withdrawn because the risks in some instances are not outweighing the benefits, but then they're still approved for other medical indications. Yeah, it's it's confusing if you're not kind of steeped in science and steeped in medicine, isn't it? But you actually said it earlier perfectly cancer isn't one diagnosis, it's thousands of diagnoses. So it's perfectly reasonable to think that a drug that not only doesn't work but may harm in one cancer may be of huge benefit in another cancer, or at least the follow-up studies didn't demonstrate the toxicities that it did in, in the cancer for which it was withdrawn. And, and it gets to this notion of trust in the FDA and giving people hope but not false hope. And, and, and that we can almost circle that back to phenylephrine uh, on a much smaller scale than treating metastatic breast cancer, of course. Sure, sure. So, so you know, these, these instances of medications being recognized as either being safe but not being effective or not being that safe and also not being effective – and actually being pulled because of surveillance should give people more trust in FDA instead of eroding trust in FDA. Is that kind of what you're saying, Mikhail? Yeah, it's you, you summed it up so much more beautifully than I did, Andrea. Uh, that, but that's exactly right. So in the, in the book, I pose the question, was the decision around Avastin the ultimate demonstration of how well the FDA works or in how it doesn't work? And I, I actually come to the conclusion it's a demonstration of how well the FDA works, right? We have life-threatening Ill illnesses, and there are plenty of examples of where accelerated approval got a drug out there years faster than it would have any other way and has saved thousands, tens of thousands of lives because it got out there earlier, right? Those are miracles. And we have them in... I treat leukemia. One of the drugs I still use is imatinib or Gleevec, and that was a drug that was approved under accelerated approval in almost record time and completely changed the face and survival for that subtype of leukemia. It's amazing. But I do believe the FDA can communicate this better. And my suggestion, humble me, is that on the label, they have a big fat asterisk for any drug that's out there under accelerated approval or any drug that falls into this 1938 to 1962 gap that says, wait, this is all temporary, right? We don't have all the data in yet. So yeah, you can use it for now, but but we may pull it if the data shows that the drug is not safe or not effective. Yeah. And I love that point. And I think 
you know, that should go hand in hand with obviously efforts by clinicians and scientists to communicate what these things mean. And one thing, you know, that that's often confused or conflated is this difference between withdrawal of medications like we just discussed and and voluntary or temporary recalls. Because a lot of times we hear, oh, well, 14,000 drugs have been pulled. You know, the FDA is doing a terrible job of surveilling. And and these are these are recalls and they're typically um, they're not the same as a withdrawal. They're typically related to things that have like improper storage conditions or quality control issues with manufacturing, which is why checking those factories are really important, or because um, the packaging or something like that violated the FDA legal requirements for that medication. And so typically when you're when you're talking about these thousands of, you know, drugs that have been recalled in the last 10 years, you're talking about things that are, you know, like like an example would be like something stored at the wrong temperature or something put in the wrong tube or the tube was damaged. And those are not issues of the medication, the active ingredient, it's more of a quality control measure that's being taken. Yeah, and and, we, and you're spot on, and we saw this during COVID. Uh, you remember there was one manufacturer yes. who, had, who had made all these COVID vaccines, and then it turns out that it was, it, it, they weren't pure substances. Yeah. So they had all, they couldn't make it out to the market. That was a, you know, good for the FDA for inspecting that and finding that. Yes. Or we'll, we'll hear stories of IV solutions where there are glass shards yes. in the IV. Yeah. Right? So it's it's wonderful that the FDA is doing that. They're truly protecting the health of the public. So just this might be a little tangential, but I, and I know we're running short on time here, but I, I think we'd be remiss if I'd like us to just talk a little bit more about public mistrust in the FDA, because I have lost count of how many, I mean, forget people who message us constantly, but even people in my own life who are hesitant to take certain medications or vaccines because just they just they don't trust anything to come out of the FDA. And, you know, we hear examples like, you know, finger pointing about the opioid epidemic and that the FDA is too close to, to the manufacturers and pharma, uh, you know, the drugs that they're supposed to be regulating. Can you just maybe, what, what would you say to those people? Can we talk a little bit about the rigor with which, you know, the, these things are overseen and the testing and transparency to maybe allay some of those concerns? Yeah, that's it's a really great point, Jess. And I think that, uh, you know, I think we're all guilty of doing a little disservice to trust in healthcare in general during the pandemic because we were reacting in real time to the data that was available to us and not couching our recommendations in, this is really early, we have a limited data, this is the best we can do, right? You had much more confidence coming out of healthcare authorities about the right thing to do when in fact there wasn't that confidence backing it in any kind of scientific studies. I mean, heck, you even had people making recommendations based on preprints, oh, right? Something the that preprint phenomenon drove me bananas. <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one, Andrea. No. Because you stop and you're like, oh my God, this is like a. I was like, no, it's know, not sexually transmitted. That's a preprint. And these are six people that are in ICU. Right. Of course they have virus in their testicles. Right. 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 Exactly. So I'm glad I'm not alone with that, right? That kind of drove me nuts. So, yeah, I think 
that healthcare authorities in general did a disservice to trust in healthcare. And I think some of that was translated to blame of the FDA. I have to tell you that when I have worked with the FDA, again, I am not in the FDA. I'm a special government employee. I have complete independence with making recommendations to the FDA. Hell, heck, I even wrote a book about the FDA that wasn't always the most positive about the FDA. There's nothing they can do about it, I'm not in the FDA. But I will tell you that when I worked with them, I have never worked with a team that so badly wants to get it right. And I, you know, we're all in professions where we work with teams and we've got, you know, some good team members and some team members aren't as good. And, you know, you have different cultures in different places. The culture at the FDA is really, really strong. And, you know, you come out of meetings there and I would literally, I would fly home from DC after a meeting and, you know, my wife, who's, who's a pharmacist, would say to me, how did it go? And I would give her one of two answers. I would either say, today we voted to get a new drug out to people who really need it, or I would say, today we voted to safeguard the health of the public. And I really think that's how the FDA thinks. And when they make a decision to get a drug out there, they're working on the best available evidence where they think this is really going to help people and it's not going to endanger them. What I wish they would do is not be as confident about their their approvals, their emergency use authorizations, their accelerated approvals. I wish they would say, you know what? We think this is the right thing to do. There's more to come. Instead, what they say is, we approve this today, and that's it. So I think, I think a lot of it really comes down to a misconception, and this is something Jess and I talk about a lot, is that you know science is aggregate, right? It, it accrues over time as we get new data, and that adds to the body of evidence, and then we can add to our understanding and knowledge and, and all of that. And, and so the general public isn't always privy to kind of that phenomenon. And so when they hear these these statements or these decisions and then they go on social media or media, it's often positioned as black and white. And we see that with people in the, the wellness industry or promoting snake oil. It's this is toxic and this is causing cancer and this is killing you. And it's like, well, at what dose, at what exposure, at what route of administration? But I think there's there's just this disconnect about, you know, this this nuance and this granularity and this this shades of gray. I mean, even with these these cancer medications, it's a great illustration, right? It's super effective and beneficial in one instance but not in another instance. And so I think FDA doing that is is critical. And, and I wish that other scientific entities, whether these are medical organizations or academic medical centers, you know, beyond just like the individuals, right? You're writing a book about this. You know, Jess and I are trying to, to educate people on social media. Um, but I think it, it really requires this collective effort and also the public to be receptive to that. So, you know, so there are people who are skeptical, but then there's also people who are really entrenched. Do you think that there's any way to get through to those people? Well, I was going to say it's why a podcast like you have are so very important to illuminate science and the nuances of it. It's really true, right? We, it, it's up to us to educate people and to be willing as scientists, as healthcare practitioners to reach out, not to our colleagues, but to the general population to be able to communicate in a clear way to the general population about what's going on in real time. But those who are, I, I don't know how to address those who are entrenched. It became so politicized that I don't think it became a scientific issue anymore. And as a scientist, it doesn't matter what I say, I'm already mistrusted, right? So uh, it would, it, you know, and, and I've tried to do this with, with some of my patients and I certainly have patients who are anti-vaxxers. I, you know, 
present to them my recommendation that because, particularly because they're immunocompromised, that they get vaccinated and it's, you know, could, could keep them from dying later on. I see some of my patients roll their eyes and just say, you're right, doc. I see some patients who actually have refused to mask in front of me because they believe in it so strongly. Science is not going to be able to convince those people otherwise. But I think it takes science to educate people realistically about what they can get out of science and maybe that'll make some inroads. Well, you are an absolute inspiration. I'm Andrea and I know I'm just looking at Andrea's face. We're, we're wishing we could clone you. Thank you so sincerely for the work that you've done and that you continue to do. You are amazing. Thank you so much for joining us. I think people, I learned a lot from this. Not only are you doing such impactful work, but but I mean, the storytelling component, it's just it, fantastic. Um, um, and I and and you know we have a copy of of your book. I started skimming. I'm really looking forward to digging in and reading all the stories. But Dr. Mikhail Sakaris, can't thank you enough for joining us um, and all the important work you do on a day to day basis. We hope our listeners learn a thing or two and maybe have a little bit more trust in the FDA process now. Um, so thank you everyone for tuning in. And if you want to support our efforts in science communication, we welcome your contributions. Of course, we do have a donation page and a coffee account. And we have our snarky merch for season four. So if you want your anecdote as an evidence or your Asaka Chemicals shirt, make sure to head to our website. It's www.unbiasidepod. And of course, make sure to subscribe to our YouTube and all of our social media accounts. Our handle is at UnbiasedSciPod. Catch you next time on the pod, your trusted source for no-nonsense, just science. Woo!